It's always good to be applauded by a fake audience. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a very special installment of the Bat Segundo Show. Now, this little doggy was recorded in front of a live audience. No money exchanged hands. In fact, nobody's paying me to tell you about this, which strikes me as kind of unfair. I better go ahead and consult my union. Uh, is there a shop stirred? Anyway, I can't say that this is the first of a two-part conversation. I, I guess I'll shut up now and leave the real stuff to the professionals. Okay, so, um, thank you all for coming. Uh, welcome to a special audience-friendly uh, version of the Bat Segundo Show. We have Paul Murray, uh, a novelist who has written two novels. One is An Evening of Long Goodbyes, and the second is the one we're here to talk about tonight, which is Skippy Dies. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> I've only got like a bit. Okay, are you, you, do you need uh, additional Kleenex? Or no, no, are you no, okay? No, no, <laughs> just, just ignore the, you know, whatever. All right. Just for me. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to first of all talk about uh, the influence of cinema on both of your novels, but particularly Skippy Dies. You have uh, An Evening of Long Goodbyes, Gene Tierney is actually a big component of that. And, of course, in, uh, in Skippy Dies, you have the beginning of Part 3 opening with a sort of Glen Gary, Glen Ross-like, you know, service for Ed's Donut service. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, you, early on in the book, Barry describes much of his narrative like parts of a movie. Uh, a storm outside a window is like something out of a movie. Uh, then there's the, uh, the, the whole item that Haley is reviewing. It's Sony's intelligent eye system, which is movies that are more vivid than life. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a big movie theme. And, and I'm curious uh, why the influence of cinema uh, is often more prominent in your books than, say, other novels. Uh, well, I think that cinema is the dominant art form of our time, really, you know, and I think that increasingly we're sort of encouraged to construct our lives as, as cinematic narratives, you know, um, and you've even got like sort of, you know, uh, with your with your Walkman or your iPod or whatever, you know, got like people construct soundtracks for their lives, that's how they sort of, uh, that's how they do it these days, so I think that I think like for, lit for literature really needs to sort of uh, engage with, with cinema um, yeah. in, in that kind of way. Um, also, I think like that cinema, I guess sort of in, in Skippy anyway, and like in the first book too, um, there's, this, there's a lot of escaping and fleeing of reality happening, happening in those books. Like people sort of avoiding their, their um, responsibilities in favor of constructing dramatic narratives for themselves, you know, and like, and, and I think cinema has arguably been kind of a bad influence on civilization, if, if that's not too uh, grandiose or, or uh, inane. Um, not at all. I think it's a thing to say. Uh, I remember I read a great uh, piece by Anthony Lane about the Olympics um, in Beijing, and he was talking about, there was a close-up of one of the runners, uh, and he just, um, he talked just about the, the way that, like, the, the camera changed the way that we perceive the individual. The fact, like, sort of, you know, for the first time, a human being can be like 50 foot tall, you know, and 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 you can you can transcend the crowd in a way that you never could before, you know. Uh, and I think that that's sort of what we're led to, or how we're led to act in 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 um, our our modern, extremely mediated time, like to to try and think of ourselves, or to try and construct our lives in a way that sort of raises us above all the people around us as opposed to, you know, paying attention to them. I always think of my, my, my favorite example of, um, of media sort of interpolating itself between 
um, us and reality is, you know, not hearing an old lady who's, fall, who's dropped her shopping because you're listening to, you know, Tupac or whatever, you know, yeah. um, just like being cool, being sort of quite a, a negative thing in some ways. Yeah, I mentioned the movie uh, situation because I did find your essay for The Guardian where you basically you kind of confessed that you were a big fan of David Lynch. But there was one thing you wrote in that that I, I found really quite interesting. You said, for all our postmodernity, we remain quite traditional in our regard for logic and a film such as Lost Highway, whose anti-hero without explanation turns into someone else halfway through, is genuinely shocking. Um, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on this preferential aesthetic in relation to Skippy Dies, because with Carl, the drug-pushing bully, he really transforms midway through in a manner that just, speaking just as a reader, really tremendously shocked me, mm. to the point where I, I was really wanting to give some kind of empathy to this character, as creepy as he was, and then he does something so monstrous that I'm, I'm like, wow. But, but you say that audiences wish for a traditional logic, and, and I'm wondering um, how you found this balance between the sort of shocking character revelation and this ongoing narrative momentum that, that fulfills what seems to be traditional. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, almost an offshoot of the 1930s feel you had in your first novel. Okay, it's an elaborate question. Yes, um, you get those with me. Uh, <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> Damn you! Uh, let me see. Um, David Lynch. I like have huge regard for David Lynch. I think he's amazing. Like when I was when I was a, a teenager in 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 Dublin, Dublin was like it was like living in Bucharest or something like that. It was just a total backwater. Nothing, nothing really happening there culture wise. Um, and when Twin Peaks came along. It was really, you know, we, my family all sat down to watch the new, what is this new show from America? Uh, <laughs> we all sat down to watch. And just remember, like, just my father's face kind of going, this is, this is, a, this is not a moral piece of work. Um, <laughs> because, like, the, the, the thrust of it was, like, not only were sort of uh, wicked things happening and bad things happening, but it was also just, like, freaking with the logic of the everyday, like on a very kind of uh, fundamental level, you know, like white horses would appear in, in living rooms, you know, and the fish in the percolator was another sort of famous um, surreal moment um, for that film. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that um, not making sense is a, a really uh, bold aesthetic move because I think we are, like similarly to what, to what we were discussing in like a minute about, ago about cinema, like the kind of pernicious thing about cinema, like I love cinema, I watch movies all the time, you know, um, but it's really, really conservative. Like most films, in fact, pretty much all films, um, are they've got the three act, the three act structure, you know, um, and and you start thinking, like when you're sitting down to write your book, you realize that that's, that's in your head. You're kind of going, oh, this is my, where's my second actor, you know, uh, and you have to stop and say, wait, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to write a, a well-made story. I want to do something different. Um, so I think like Lynch is one of the few, really the few, he's a bit like Pynchon actually in some ways, in that like he's got a really strong sense of just pop culture and what, what ordinary people enjoy watching and listening to and reading and so forth. Uh, and he knows that so well that he can do crazy, crazy, like illogical, disturbing things with like narrative and structure and still make it like entertaining and, and enjoyable. Like I was reading this, I was, we were discussing upstairs, I'm reading this book about um, David Lipsky's going on tour with David Foster Wallace and having this big conversation. And Foster Wallace is talking about experimental fiction and saying that the tragedy of experimental fiction is that 
it's just really boring and really unfun to read, you know, and what he's trying to do in Infinite Chest is like do something new and do something different that at the same time won't lose all the readers except other experimental writers, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. So, so like, you know, pe people will actually enjoy it enough to do the work that it asks them to do. Um, and I think Lynch, is, Lynch sort of, Lynch does that. Pynchon maybe is not so approachable. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in Skippy, like I, I kind of thought that, uh, I guess it was, yeah, to come back to that Twin Peaks thing, like I was writing about teenagers and I think as a teenager, wherever you are, life feels disjointed and violent and ugly and erotic and threatening and anxious. Um, and linear narratives just don't reflect that, you know? Um, maybe that's why, like, Catcher in the Rye is such a great book, because, like, it's full of these strange moments where Holden sort of disappears into his, you know, surroundings. Um, so I wanted to do that in, in, in Scipio. Like, I wanted it to make it, to make it sort of fractured and to, to kind of fit the kid's experience, you know? Yeah. Um, but also make it readable and fun, you know? It's, it's interesting that we're talking about David Foster Wallace and these kinds of, you know, whether something is experimental or not. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, we had earlier in the year, there was this book by David Shields called Reality Hunger, in which he sort of rejected pretty much every piece of fiction <laughs> except for something within his limited aesthetic. Uh, I'm wondering, though, if you feel that the quest for new literature or new fiction really comes back towards burrowing into the old, uh, similar to, you know, whether it be Twin Peaks or whether mm. it be, you know, what you're observing in this Lipsky book. I mean, to the, in, in the context of the writing of Skippy Dies, I mean, how much of the new was found by really excavating the old? Uh, well, you know, I guess on some level everything's been said, and, you know, uh, yeah. uh, not to be, like, flip about it, but... Uh, like I read Tristram Shandy this year, uh, and and uh, what a great what a great book! I sort of avoided it because I knew it was this like famously postmodern uh, arch narrative, lots of game playing, and it just sounded phenomenally like annoying. Um, but uh, <laughs> when you read it, it's actually just it's tremendously warm. It's got these really lovely, kind, generous characters who just sit around. It's mostly just sitting around in a kitchen. The Shandy family talking about uh, noses. There's a lot of conversation about. Um, the importance of having a big nose um, if you're a man, uh, and the joke is like the you have a very nice nose. I want thank to be you, thank yeah. you very much. I was you know I was I was fishing for nose compliments. Uh, yeah. but, uh, thank you, thank you. You, you, you Irish authors always have great that, noses. Uh, yeah. Um, but um, where is it going with that now? Uh, <laughs> Tristram Shandy and these very tender moments within something that is seemingly baroque. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think that like so that that it makes you realize that books from a very early stage. Um, are weird. They're weirdly structured, and they're st and again, like to come back to the the cinema thing, like you know, if you read something like Tristram Shandy, or if you, if you read like most novels that are any use, you pick them up and you read them, and you go, this is this is kind of bats. What's going on in this thing? Can you do this in a book? Um, because I think that well, certainly I, I don't know about anyone else, but you've really just inculcated the um, the three act structure uh, and the well made story and that that whole concept. So. You, uh, yeah, I think books from the get-go have been kind of quite perverse and, and weirdly, um, weirdly structured. Um, so, I mean, I read a lot. Like, I read, I read a lot all the time. And uh, I do that very, you know, some writers say, oh, I don't read when I'm, when I'm writing, you know, but it took me seven years to read that, to, to write that Skippy, you know. So yeah. uh, if I didn't read a book for seven years, I think I'd, I'd go insane, you know. Um, <laughs> so uh, David Shields wrote this book called Reality Hunger, 
you guys don't know it, uh, which is sort of a polemic about how um, the novel is dead and what we need to do instead is he's really into... Is it fair to say he's quite into just reality TV and... and yeah, he, he, I mean, I, I talk with a guy and he's, he's very much into an extremely limited aesthetic. He will like flip through a book and if there's something that is, seems real to him, maybe like 10 pages of Infinite Jest or something, yeah. then that will, he will hold up, but the rest of it will be garbage as far as he's concerned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, which is a really weird way of reading, but an interesting way of reading. It is interesting, but yeah. I'd like, it seemed like he didn't really like books, you know? So yeah, I just well, don't know why you're I know. I, it's like asking... I, I, uh, I, I tried to see if he had a sense... I mean, he was on the Colbert Report and he basically yeah. said to Stephen Colbert, you're a persona. Whoa, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I mean, what kind yeah. of guy do you have to be to have like that kind of a humorless approach? But oh, I like, don't know. I, I I wish him well. I, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm sure. I, I, I'm sure he's, he's yeah. a nice man. But it's like it's like getting my my, my dad to review like the yeah. new sort of you know yeah. Sonic shit. Sonic my dad reads. Like yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. It just seemed like sort of yeah. a disconnect there. Um, so I forget what the what how the question started, but uh, I feel like I've answered. Oh no, no. I, I think we kind of have. I mean, you know, in Tristram Shandy, uh, you mentioned with David Lynch in Lost Highway that protagonist changing. I'm wondering if there was something, I mean, you read Tristram Shandy during the course of writing Skippy, or that was just that recently? Was afterwards. That was yeah, afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering what you got from reality, since we're talking about reality hunger, to get this level of uh, verisimilitude that's within Skippy Dies. I mean, yeah. on one hand, you have this interesting interrelationship between real reality and fantasy, not just through movies, but also yeah. through video games, yeah. through text messages, through fantasies. Uh, but I'm curious at, at what you know, at what point do you sort of just steer off from reality entirely? I mean, this book has a lot of very earnest and very meaningful and very poignant moments about what it is to, to grow up like this. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm curious uh, whether this pursuit towards the artificial, towards the virtual, towards the uh, non-real uh, almost generates uh, more truth for the, in terms of the real. Yeah, uh, Russell Hoban has this great line, yeah. feeling unreal is an essential part of reality, you know, and I think that's 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 very true. Um, I think, like at the risk of sounding like a dick and a, and a philosophy, uh, minor, feel free. Which which I am. Um, like I don't think reality is like very realistic. You know, yeah. I think like uh, I think that there's uh, uh, like in in Ireland there's there's like a really strong. I mean, you've got Joyce and, and Beckett, obviously, and all the crazy modernists uh, doing just very strange things. Um, after that, there was a long period which sort of lingers on today of people writing these very very like realistic sort of naturalistic books about kind of like a, a strange, an, an Ireland of like just, you know, donkeys and fields and, and priests who love their maids and, and uh, you know, uh, getting your boots stuck in the bog and that kind of, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't, it, it just did like, there's no computers, you know, and there, there is no, um, you know, there's no one has a, has a phone, you know, so, yeah. so yeah, when your boot gets stuck in the bog, you have to, shout to the priest from across the hills like the <laughs> echoes carry across or the fairy folk help you know or whatever. Um, but it's just it, it just like it did not chime with my experience growing up at all like even even in the 90s when when like there was no internet so like the internet is, is changing our like the whole structure of of reality and i think in ways that that aren't going to be apparent until um the next generation grows up and proves incapable of anything except masturbating uh, uh, we have, why, we have, why are there lots of dick jokes? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so you got something you want to? Uh, um, uh, but but so yeah. So I felt I felt like that. Um, I felt that uh, that Irish fiction was was sort of deliberately refusing to interrogate modernity. Not even just interrogate, but just just represent 
what it's like to grow up in in like a modern city, you know. Um, and if you're young, I guess you're sort of at the cutting edge or the coal face of all those, of whatever changes are occurring at the time, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I I guess like the form of the book, uh, I felt like it needed to be. Um, yeah, it, it needed to sort of be structured in a way like that wasn't linear and wasn't naturalistic because I just don't think like I wasn't trying to be experimental. I just thought that if you were a kid nowadays, your life is is not very linear and it's not very naturalistic because you'll spend most of your time looking at your phone or looking at a screen and you, or or you know watching the TV or or you're very rarely actually where you are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and like that's that's I guess that's that's a, maybe that's part of the human condition like never to be never to be actually tuned into what's around you. Um, but it seems like it seems like the whole thrust of, of, of the 21st century is just to take us further and further and further away from, from where we are, you know, and, and yeah. further away into like strange kind of digital fantasies. And this probably explains why so much of Skippy is about this meshing between reality and fantasy. Uh, that in your efforts possibly to examine life with these delimiting technological factors, you're saying that it led inevitably towards this uh, this inner this blur between reality and, and fantasy. Yeah, well, yeah. I think this was you when you when you were a kid. Like, I mean, yeah. as I say, like when I was a kid, there was no internet and and computer games were like pretty. You know, there was I wasn't quite Pong era, but but it was uh, you know it, asteroids maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't like, uh, but I think like the teenage, the way you kind of cope with the stresses of being a teenager is to take refuge in. In TV shows or films or, or computer games or or I was really into those like well, I wasn't into role playing but these like uh, game book things oh yeah where you roll dice and you fight orcs yeah like the Lone Wolf and Cub books you play yeah yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I totally played yeah, those they yeah, were yeah, great yeah yeah, yeah 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 don't tell anyone yeah, no no yeah. Well, it's, it's on it's on tape I'm afraid <laughs> but ah uh, oh, again with the yeah, orcs yeah. oh no when are the orcs going to get along yeah, yeah. I know um, but uh, you know that that's 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 what you do like you're constantly and like when I when I was sort of growing up. Like the the Walkman arrived, you know, and and the Walkman, the, I mean the Walkman is like is a, is a is a major. I'm going to argue that the, the Walkman is like a major shift in the way we perceive reality, because like for the first time you can carry music around you and you you start narrating your life, like the the, the self narration um, just shifts a gear, you know, shifts higher up, um, and that that kind of process is kind of. As I say, like that's the, the, what technology gives us is is more and more elaborate ways of, of 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 doing that, you know. So the kids in the book, because they're 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 young and they're afraid and they're lost, they they take refuge in like the you know the the example is the big example I guess is Skippy. Skippy's like this fourteen year old um, kind of quite reclusive boy um, who's sort of addictively playing this computer game, like kind of a Legend of Zelda type. Um, Type computer game and it reflect. I mean, I played. I don't know if you've have you ever played Zelda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, that thing sucked too many hours. Yeah, of my and it's, life. it's crazy. Like, but I, I play, I'm like now it's Team Fortress too. If we're going to be professional, really? yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Okay, uh, we can yeah. talk with this. Yeah, uh, like I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a. I'm not a. There are girls here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, That's true. I, I, I'm not a huge computer game player, but my my my, my brother uh, has like had a whatever the machine was that played Zelda, and like it's. Yeah, yes. The same, the same guy, the same com game designer, who the guy who invented like Donkey Kong back in the seventies, has now done Legend of Zelda, and he creates these incredible worlds that are so powerful and are like art forms in some ways, in the richness of detail, and in the beauty of them, but are not like art forms in the fact that they are uh, 
they don't challenge your perception of, you know, they don't challenge you as a person at all. Like, they make you like you're the total, you're the master of this world that you find yourself in, which is like a really narcissistic kind of fantasy. Um, and the kids, the kids lose themselves in these fantasies of like control and power. Like, you know, like the same way if you, if you walk down the street and you're listening to Tupac, you, you know, you kind of imagine that you're Tupac. And even if you're 14 and very small, if motherfuckers come at you, then, you know, look out, you know, because you'll... Um, so, uh, so, so that's what you're doing. And, and I guess, like, sort of the really obvious conceit of the book is that, like, that's what everybody's doing these days. Like, as an adult, um, becoming or being an adult or being mature is less and less part of the adult experience. Instead, you've just, all, all an adult is is someone with more spending power who can buy better better enhancers or, or escapes from, from reality, you know, yeah. so the, you know, part of the reason the world is so, um, I'm trying to say fucked, uh, is because, uh, is because just, you know, we feel less and less responsibility for the world around us. Instead, we just flee into whatever Apple has just produced, you know, and for a thousand dollars. Well, this topographical engorgement, which you suggest, uh, I'm wondering if this is also what motivated a lot of the slight <coughs> nudges into second person. Uh, you read the book, and it's you, this, you're, you're moving into this, you're doing this, and uh, it's rather interesting. It, it reminded me very much of like a text adventure game to some degree, yeah, and, I, and I'm wondering if the attempt to, I suppose, pinpoint the world both motivated this interesting sort of use of the second person in a third-person omniscient uh, narrator, yeah. similar to, you know, I mean, also, you're jumping from the first-person narrator you had in your first book as well. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about this, and also, while I'm on the subject and throwing all sorts of crazy inquiries at you, uh, I, I wanted to also ask you about... Um, uh, actually, let's, let's, I'm, I'm not going to be kind. I'll just go ahead and on the second-person thing I'm curious about. Okay, uh, yeah. well, the first book I wrote was uh, written in first-person, and it's uh, the person, he's got quite a distinctive voice, his name is Charles Hidley, and he's sort of like a Bertie Wooster type uh, of a guy. Like, he's 24, and he's, he's a fop living in this kind of huge old house, and he spends all his day watching Gene Tierney movies and, yeah. and, and drinking, which was, which was sort of how I wanted to spend my 20s. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I wasn't allowed to by various kind of cultural forces and my parents. Uh, so, um, like, it was great fun to write a book with, like, that, that you know, the... One of the many difficulties of, of, of writing is finding finding a voice, you know, uh, finding a voice that, that you believe in yourself. And, and uh, that voice, Charles's voice, when when I kind of started writing, like it felt really strong, and I felt like sort of strong enough to, to kind of take me through the whole narrative. And it's great in some ways because um, it's a great way of focusing the book, so you can get a lot of disparate material in there, and it's all sort of joined together by the by this singular voice. But it's also really limiting because this this character, like, um, he was such a dimwit, you know, like, he just couldn't, he was really, like, emotionally sort of retarded, and, and he wasn't able to see a lot of the things that were happening around him. So it was quite frustrating, because you would want him to, you would want something to happen, you know, and, and but Charles wouldn't be able to see it, so there was no way of, of portraying it in the book. Uh, so in, in, in when it came to Skippy, I really, I wanted to make it third person, and I wanted to make it... Uh, I wanted to take full advantage of that, you know. Uh, so it flips from from sort of various characters, narrators, and then sometimes it's like briefly it's first person, uh, and uh, at, at certain moments it's it's second person. And I think the second person I found 
second person is kind of a tricky one to, to, to do, but I think this time, for, for whatever reason, it felt, it felt right, you know. Um, it, it's Skippy's sort of the central figure, but because he's such a strange, reclusive boy, like he's, he's constantly sort of disappearing um, amidst the other voices uh, in the book. Um, but there's some, some stretches that are narrated in the second person. Uh, and that's like, I don't know if it's like, the, if it's the book talking to Skippy or if it's Skippy talking to the book, but it sort of felt very intimate for some reason. And yeah, I have to mention this because you're wearing a rather interesting t-shirt right. and uh, basically depicting economic catastrophe. Yeah. Uh, you know, speak to bring the Celtic Tiger into this conversation, I should point out that both of your novels deal with uh, Ireland in this state of economic ruin. Yeah. In the first book, um, you know, we see it through the misfortune of the, uh, of the, of course, the, uh, <laughs> the state going, going and losing all of its money. We see the, uh, the, this, this deteriorating economy. And in this book, you have Howard the Coward, the teacher, who has uh, uh, had a previous career as an investment banker. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about why the economy factors so much in these two novels. Uh, I mean, is it, does it, again, go back to this effort to sort of explore the, the larger canvas of the world uh, while also being within this kind of almost digital video game mm -hmm. limitation? Or, or what, what of this? Or are you just, you know, constantly checking your bank statement? <laughs> uh, writers yeah. very rarely check their bank statements. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, now it's like a, if there's a window lecture, yeah. you know, so... Or, or uh, not, in this case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, I guess for the simple reason that, uh, like, Ireland went through... The, Ireland went from being, like, a real, as I say, like, backwater, which is also, like, quite a poor country. Like, just, just uh, like, when I was in college, I graduated college in 97, and, like, as Charles says in the book, the conversation you would have was, with your friends, was, will you go to London, will you go to New York, will you go to Paris, will you go to Frankfurt? Like, no one would stay in Dublin because there was nothing there. Um, and then suddenly, uh, basically because of like American computer companies investing in Ireland, it got like really super rich, like almost almost overnight. Like it was very very strange. Um, like when when I started writing that book, uh, An Evening of Long Goodbyes, I went to I went to Barcelona to to, to teach English uh, and write my novel, which was a really bad experience uh, because uh, Barcelona was full of of people who'd come to teach English and and yeah. write their novels. And no one in Barcelona wanted to learn English, so there was just like lots of really hungry teachers, you know, with like sort of manuscripts just kind of shambling around the place, um, uh, staring, wow. staring kind of like hungrily into restaurants, you know, like. Uh, this explains why so much of your book, the first one, is indoors. Literally, yeah, well, also yeah. because like uh, the, the, like the, 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 the like I say, like ch the, the book is it starts off with this like very wealthy layabout sitting in his house watching movies and drinking wine, and he's got this this Bosnian cook who brings him his meals. And that was my, my, like, I started writing this book in Spain when, uh, when I was, I was, like, broke and, and, like, physically hungry, you know, and, and uh, it was just a fantasy of home, of just, you know, of, 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 of like, sort of a, a and, and just a fantasy version of Ireland. But when I came home, when I came back to Ireland, I was away for, like, three months, and the place had, like, everybody had a phone, like, like we, we, and, like, it sounds, it sounds so, it's hard for us to imagine a time without phones, but the time was January 99, no one had a phone, unless you were like Monty Burns, like or, or some sort of, you know, uh, you were just or some like, drug dealer. Yeah, 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 yeah. you were like, and your phone like the size. Yeah, of yeah, exactly. Uh, like nobody had phones, like, and to have a phone was like just, it was like, you know, having like a money staple to your coat or something like. It was just yeah. like considered quite bad form. Um, <laughs> but then when when I came back, like everybody, like my friends all had phones. They were like, you know, walk around Hypo. 
Yeah. How's it going? We're talking on our phones. Um, and also people were, um, like, literally people had started drinking lattes, you know? Uh, uh, <laughs> you, couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't get a cup of coffee and there was one cafe in Dublin, like, literally. Wow. Uh, there was one cafe. Uh, Even if you were lactose intolerant, you were kind of screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was like the one cafe full of, cafe full of, full of like, just, you know, that was quite a, like a, a, an avant-garde thing to do, like drink coffee, like, what's he, what's he doing, you know? Because um, tea, like tea is the national drink in yeah. Ireland. Everybody drinks like 50,000 cups of tea a day. And, and, but like suddenly lattes had arrived and cappuccinos had, had arrived. Uh, and I got a job in this cafe. Um, um, one of the, the, new, the new cafes for the new money. And like it's sort of focaccias and ciabattas and stuff. And people would come in and kind of go, what is a focaccia? You know? <laughs> uh, and I can never remember like what, what, which one was what, you know, so I go yeah. to the chef and say, which one is focaccia? And they go, it's sort of the olive oil one. And I go, it's, it's, it's an olive oil, it's Italian, you know. And I go, okay, one, one focaccia, and like, what is a, what is a maca? Uh, and like, you know, so, but it was like literally this, this poor sideline backwater marginal country that everybody left as soon as they could, suddenly really affluent and like looking for ways to reinvent itself. And like, just like, I mean, does that, Dr. Oh, Seuss, yeah. Dr. Seuss book, The Sneetches. Do you ever read that, that, that book where like, uh, it, no, I guess I, maybe that's a bad example, but, uh, but just <laughs> the, the Sneetches is like, just a, the, the, there's a bunch of these strange bird-like creatures living on a beach. Um, and some of them have stars in, on their belly and some of them don't. Um, and the stars, star-bellied Sneetches lured it over the ones without stars. Uh, and then this, this monkey comes along with a star-making machine. Uh, and all these, the Sneetches without stars pay huge amounts of dough to get stars printed on their bellies, whereupon the star-bellied sneeches pay huge amounts of dough to get the stars taken off their bellies and so forth. Uh, and Ireland, it was similarly, it was like literally, it was, everybody bought like outdoor jacuzzis. Uh, and if you've ever been to Ireland, you know that like, it's, it's not, uh, 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 it's, it's not going to get much use, you know, um, unless you're going to wear a wetsuit and, and sit outside. And, um, but like, but, but, and the national conversation was from being like quite, uh, like it, this, the cliches were sort of true, like it was a very kind of moralistic country and, and a very Catholic country. The national conversation totally changed. All anyone talked about was money. Uh, all anybody talked about was property. There's a property boom, which we see the, the, the horrific results of now. Everybody was an expert on, on you know, on like it was like, like Hallie in the book says, being in Ireland is like being at a realtor's convention. Yeah. Like all anybody talked about was flipping apartments, everybody was buying apartments and flipping them, you know, what, what you're flipping, what does that mean, you know, that, uh, aren't they heavy, you know, um, but, but yeah. that's what they were doing, and people, there were these, there were these uh, property fairs, whereby, you know, John and Mary from, from down the streets would go into these, these fairs and buy apartments in, in Macedonia, and in Turkey, and Armenia, and places they couldn't find on a map, that's what they were doing, because people had money, what do you do with money, well, oh, you invested, Mr. You know, Starbelly Sneech, put it in this, in this, um, in this apartment scheme I'm going to build in Macedonia. Um, so, like, economics was very much to the fore and the deleterious effects of economics because the model that was being pursued in Ireland was an American model. Uh, there, was, there was kind of a... There was a famous speech made by, by an economics minister who says that uh, Ireland's maybe part of Europe, but it's always going to be closer to Boston than Berlin. Uh, and what that meant was we're not going to be a bunch of socialists. We are going to pursue... The, you know, market fundamentalism and it's every man for himself. So it became quite a cruel society in that way because marginalized people were left behind. Uh, and, and the priests and the, the religious, like at the same time, the, the, the kind of the, 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 the religious 
world which had dominated the country and sort of like, you know, written the, the moral laws for so many years was imploding because of, because of abuse. Um, but all the good things the church did, like all sort of anything altruistic was seen as, as part of that old system, you know, and was something just to be kind of lost, you know, yeah. and, and uh, it, was, it was a really disturbing time to be, to be, I mean, there was good things too, obviously, but uh, like people didn't have to emigrate, but uh, like a lot of things were lost in the mix. When I was writing those books, um, those were the dominant questions. Like it was, it was really, it was really, really interesting. And I don't want to bore anybody, but uh, people in Tallinn couldn't get apartments. People in like Estonia and Armenia couldn't afford apartments because a bunch of people in Ireland had bought them all. You know, so like just the the. the but no one, no one thought about that. No one cared about effects. All anybody cared about was was making money, you know, and and being seen to be writing this, what being part of this new, the new Ireland, the new culture, and like what it was all about was like beating the past. Everything new was a way of like distancing yourself from the old peasant Ireland that we were suddenly so ashamed of. Yeah, is this what led you to the Great War and Robert Graves in this? I mean. You know, you mentioned the church, and the church, of course, rather famously opposed World War One in, in Ireland. And and I, I'm curious uh, if that was the, uh, I guess, the latest you can go back in in, in you know Irish modernity, so to speak. Um, I think like no, I mean, I think that the church. Well, I thought like the First World War. I wanted to write about the reason I like. The, there's a history teacher in the book called Howard, um, who is uh, he's teaching his class the, about the First World War. And he reads them from Robert Graves' book, uh, Goodbye to All That, which is just an astonishing, astonishing autobiography, the one, like just a, a wonderful book. Um, and he becomes obsessed with the, with the First World War as just the romance of the First World War, you know, and, and the, the fact that like that generation, like it's a seductive idea, that generation had a cause and was maybe, well, it wasn't the last generation, but had a cause to fight for and had like concepts like duty and honor and tradition that you could that they could believe in, that hadn't been sort of like completely undermined by, by irony, you know. Um, so he gets really sort of obsessed with, with the First World War. But what was the Irish um, participation in the First World War? Um, initially, I, you know, I, it, was, it was considered the right thing to do to join up. Like it was considered, like Ireland was, was um, basically the deal was that if Ireland took part in the First World War on the side of Britain and the Allies, after the war was finished, um, Ireland would get home rule. So like, it wouldn't get full independence, but it would get parliamentary independence. Uh, so it was considered like nationalistic good form to go and fight on the part. So like 200,000 Irish people went to fight in, 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 in the Somme and in, you know, in, in Gallipoli, uh, and 40 or 50,000 of them died. No one knows the figure, and no one knows the figure because when they came back in the meantime, the Easter Rising had happened in 1916, and suddenly, you were a traitor. If you'd, if you'd fought on the side of Britain, you were, you were a, a terrible traitor and, and you'd betrayed your nation. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a sh totally shameful thing to have participated. So like, these, 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 these men came back uh, and found what their experiences like, just couldn't be spoken about. You know, There's a great moment, there's a Jennifer Johnson novel called uh, How Many Miles to Babylon, where she talks about um, one of the characters. He's an old man, but he goes up to Dublin every year uh, and he's got his uniform, he wears this big great coat over his, his army uniform because he's going to see all the veterans, but you can't show your uniform because you'd be pilloried, you know? Um, 
there's famous examples, like there were these, there were parades every year in, in, for the first sort of few years after the war, they'd have like Armistice Day um, commemorations and these would be infiltrated by like nationalist mobs and there'd be like punch-ups, you know, people would wear the poppy um, and other people would, would go around snatching poppies off, off people's lapels, you know, and then people started putting razor blades in their puppies, you know, yeah. to cut the fingers. So it was, it was uh, but ultimately what happened was it was erased from history. It was erased. Um, and it was not to be found in the history books. So when I went to school and when I read like modern school books for when researching the book, firstly, the, the world, First World War was done in a page, which is a terrifying um, thing in itself. But like just no mention of, 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 of Irish, of like 50,000 people who were killed, you know, for nothing. Um, and that just struck me as like a really shocking um, but really vivid way of the way that um, institutions create narratives for themselves and the narratives are really dishonest because life is messy and ugly and uh, but we like to pretend that it's not, you know, uh, and, and <coughs> Ireland wanted to be this, this new green place full of, you know, people playing harps and... and uh, and this this story was just at odds with that. So these people were just the, the cruelty of that was really shocking to me. Yeah. Um, so it's changing now, it's, which is really interesting. Like it's it's I don't know th things things sort of reemerge from the past, but they tend to do so when it's safe. So for instance, like another like a really obvious analog of of the First World War experience was the church uh, the child abuse scandals in the church child. Um, like. For decades, the priests were doing indescribably horrible things to powerless children and women and children, and no one talked about it. People knew, but they didn't do anything about it. So now, in the like in the 90s and in the 2000s, these stories started coming out. But it was when the church was sort of on the back foot, the church was on the way out, like in the new the new order was sort of coming in, and you kind of think, well, what what use is that? Why didn't anybody? speak up at the time like there's, there's a very there's a great journalist for the Irish Times called Michael Durbin and uh, he's quite an old guy uh, and they were doing sort of a retrospective on, it, on his career and uh, they were talking about like in the 60s he wrote about these these industrial schools they were called that were run by like the Christian brothers and other orders that would just beat the kids senseless like it was it was that's what that was happening you know um, and he wrote about this in like 68 uh, he was just talking to these kids and getting their stories and he wrote about this and he said there was not one letter, there was not one letter to the paper about this, like just everybody just blanked us, you know? And I think that's, that's, we still do that today. Like today there are like other narratives that we don't, we just yeah. won't allow to be spoken, you know? Uh, and in 20 years time we'll be going, it's such a disgrace that we didn't, people didn't say this and people didn't say that. And how, what a shame that like no one knew, but you know. But wait a minute, aren't you a little guilty of that yourself? Because you're dealing with the fantasy, you're coding it. And also, don't people need some kind of hope? I mean, as corny as that may sound, this is a very hopeful book, despite the fact that a lot of really terrible things happen underneath the surface. Um, in what way am I guilty? Sorry. No, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, isn't it an inevitable part of storytelling to, I suppose, ignore certain narratives? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that's a really interesting question. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, uh, yeah, like if you're writing a book, then then you, you are making something that has a shape and an arc and is a, is a narrative. So I guess uh, that's that's a problem. But I mean, I guess that the best thing you can I mean, arguably, I think that's the like not to be again not to be kind of pretentious, but um, like tell the truth but tell it slant. You know, yeah. that's that's how the, or 
Kierkegaard, we return to Kierkegaard. Yeah. Uh, you know, subject. Like you had, the only way to really sort of describe truth is to is to is through falsity. Um, or actually, because I'm I'm collecting these quotes at the moment. Um, like <laughs> Picasso, didn't Picasso say, "Art is the lie that shows us to the truth." Yeah. You know. So I think that. Um, yeah, there there are certain kind of paradoxes there, maybe, but um, but I think. Uh, I think I'm completely abs uh, absolved from any from any guilt. Okay. <laughs> well, well, what was the second part? Oh no, no. I, I think I think I think you kind of answered that. In fact, actually, what I want to do to ensure that the audience gets an opportunity to ask you questions, we're going to have you read from the Halloween Hop okay, uh, okay. section of the book, yeah. which is, uh, I suppose, may in fact answer this particular dilemma of yeah. whether you're leaving out certain things or whether there are a lot of things buried underneath the surface in, in the course of reading this. So, okay. if you would feel free to do that, and then we'll open up the floor to questions. So. End of part one. End of part one. Part two features Paul Murray reading and audience Q&A. Please go to the next part. End of part one. End of part one. Please go to the next part. <laughs>